Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hey listeners, I'm Kim Naoni, and this is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship in advancement. Today, it's my honor and privilege to uh, meet with Mr. Jim Langley, President of Langley Innovations, and uh, we are going to be talking about, do we have to spend money to make money? Jim, welcome. Glad to be with you. Appreciate it. In a world of advancement, there's been a long-held belief that in order to raise significant transformation of gifts, an institution has to invest significant amounts of money in order to meet fundraising goals. As a result, many organizations spend a large portion of their budgets on initiatives that are not donor-centric, lack of purpose, and don't positively impact the organization's philanthropic goals. Is this really necessary and a great stewardship of donor resources? What can we do differently to ensure that we're making a smart and scalable investment in advancement operations that will lead to a greater return to an organization? Those are the operating questions that I have today. So for that, I'm joined by Jim Langley, a well-respected thought leader in advancement. And Jim, please share with our audience your advancement journey and your fundraising philosophy. Thank you. Yes. So I began on the communications side in advancement. My first job was in generating publicity. This would have been at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And I became noticed by the president who then made me his speechwriter. So at a young age, I had access to administration thinking at the top, strategic planning. And that proved to be a great boon to my career to have that access. And that president was the first to talk to me about moving into fundraising, which I was very reluctant to do. I saw it as arm twisting. And quite frankly, I saw many of the people in fundraising at the time seeming to be uh, sort of full of themselves and being self-important. And for whatever reason, I didn't identify with their way of being. And so I resisted the president's suggestion, but he assured me that fundraising when done well was not about twisting arms, was not about posturing, but discovering the philanthropic intent that was in people and finding the best possible expression for it. That it was a matter of matching their interest with institutional capabilities. And so as I began to see it that way and think about it that way, I became convinced that I could make a contribution in the field. And that was the spirit in which I pursued it. And then I took my background in journalism and communication and started applying it to fundraising, which was to use my interviewing skills. And when I did, having spent a lot of time interviewing all manner of people before I got into fundraising and having a deeply inquisitive mind and really sort of caring about underlying motivations for why people did what they did, I found people quite enjoying the time that they spent with me, me learning a lot from them. And then 
we started to produce some very significant gifts, which caused people to go, what is he doing? He came into the field without a background in <laughs> fundraising. He didn't ascribe to the sort of traditional theology of fundraising. And he started producing results. My philosophy was kind of baked in. And that was listen carefully, uh, attempt to find a match between institutional capabilities and individual donor passions. And when you do that, you're not just chasing down gifts, you're building philanthropic partnerships. And so the metaphor I use, which you've seen me use before, is are, are we looking for the low-hanging fruit, um, which is what a tree bears in one season, or are we trying to plant and nourish stronger trees so that over time we build a stronger philanthropic orchard, we sustain a philanthropic orchard that produces a richer and richer yield over time. So you've heard the old expression about knowing <clears throat> can't tell the forest from the trees. Uh, I think we need to start paying more attention and know that we make sure that we know the difference between the orchard and the fruit. You know, you, you raised some interesting points because, uh, and I appreciate that. I think one of the things that I've experienced in my career is that there are very few people who think about building authentic relationships with a long term in mind. You know, I had a conversation with a uh, supervisor one time because I was working with a donor who I barely known for a year, but I'd had conversations about their long term interest and what how they wanted to make a significant impact. But it will take years for them to be able to do what they needed to do, which was to permit to finally uh, give a gift of uh, unrestricted endowed gift of $20 million. But we have to wait. In the meantime, they're going to make small gifts in areas that are meaningful to them. I was okay with that. But then I was getting pressure to close the deal. That's let's right. just close it. Let's just get what, let's just get a million dollars to document it, to do all that. And I said, you know, this may not happen during my time here at the institution, but it's in the best interest of the institution for us to wait until the time is right. That's right. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into places and folks are just like, okay, what's the, you know, we see a, we see a big forest back there. There are a few tall trees. So let's just go right there. I mean, we need some wood. We're going to chop yes. that tree and we're going to go. We're forgetting about the fact that what if we do that? Yeah. And it has a negative impact. That's in protecting right. This environment that we're trying to protect. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's right. And you say you chop down the tree and, and so the tree bears no fruit or you, you know, you move in too early and you stun its growth, right? Yep. So you, you have to, it requires patient persistence, but always with an eye toward the long run and never sacrifice the future. Um, I'm told they say in Texas that people will step over a dollar to get a dime. That's the last thing in the world we want to do, but that's very often what the the field ask of us it's if it's as if it doesn't trust the long term it doesn't trust the future and it wants to grab now but there are consequences to grabbing now so i keep making this differentiation between gift getting and partnership building and that's exactly what you're describing and you're right it's all too rare i think about three vice presidencies that i had and in each one of them i would say my <clears throat> bosses or the powers that be were getting very restless with me at about the two and two and a half year mark you know where where are the results what's going on 
I was working on fundamentals. I was working on deepening relationships. I was working on matching ideas to people. Um, and so they would get frustrated. Um, I would see their frustration. I would see their uh, ebbing of confidence in me, which bothered me. But then after that two and a half year period, we would have a very steep trajectory. And twice in my career, my team and I tripled fundraising results in seven years. That doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't. And, um, and you know, by the time we produced the results, I was a little disenchanted with the environment that hadn't been supportive of me. Um, and then I turned around and did it again and saw the same thing. And after a while, you have you start to say to yourself, what does it take? How many times do you have to be successful or show the pathway to success only to find yourself, you know, questioned again about why something can happen more immediately when you've proven over and over again that patient persistence and sacrificing the short-term for long-term gain produces dramatic results. Um, but we struggle with this every day and we will continue to struggle. We are finding enlightened environments and enlightened leaders, but a lot of good people, a lot of good fundraisers, a lot of conscientious practitioners are under constant pressure uh, to do what they know is less productive and less fruitful. And they find that very depleting and very frustrating. So one of the reasons I write and write what I do is to give comfort to those people and tell them to stay the course, um, that it will make a, a difference. And if not where you are, it will over time. And certainly don't ever sacrifice your own principles just to meet someone else's ill-conceived metrics. Do what you think is right um, because you'll build lasting relationships with donors and that will serve you over time as well. That's incredible. So uh, you, you've touched on this, but uh, what, what you're, what you're uh, sharing here is, uh, you know, part of those key principles of developing a donor-centric uh, fundraising uh, sort of uh, environment slash strategy. Right. Perhaps you can uh, you can share one or two more more pointers uh, as folks are listening about how do you, how do you foster that donor centric culture, especially when you have institutional leadership that may not really understand uh, that they're looking at the bottom line. We need to raise money. We need to raise money now. How how one or two things that you can share on that? Yeah, you um you you have to also uh, try to focus on victories early in your tenure that will buy time for you to do what you know needs to be done. So as you gain experience, you start then saying, wait a second, the best way to produce short-term results is to find the strongest long-term relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you become wise about where those successes can be achieved by doing more homework, by looking more deeply into donor profiles, by looking at these mature relationships, right? And right. then converting those into successes, which often may be they're sitting there waiting for the right idea. No one's listened quite adequately. So you go in and listen a little bit more carefully. You listen at a, a deeper, more respectful level. And then you go to those people with long histories and you put the right idea in front of them. And then you have what appears to be a short-term success. But then you have to use that as an object lesson in that culture. You see the person that just gave us $30 million started their journey with us 30 years ago with a $200 million gift. So you 
you first look for where success can be achieved in the right place. You seize on that. You work carefully with that donor. You listen, you find what they've been looking for, and then you use that success to educate your powers that be and your culture. You see what happened. You do that two or three times and you start to help educate the culture. But when you produce these early successes, you buy yourself time. Oh, he's he's getting it. He's doing something we haven't seen before. So even though people were frustrated with me in my first two and two and a half years in leadership positions, by the end of two and a half years, we had produced gifts that they had of a magnitude they'd never seen before. And we had faculty, for instance, saying, we never saw gifts like this before. Before he came, we weren't doing this. And so the culture, even if people, <clears throat> board members or presidents are putting you under pressure, other people start speaking up for you and go, oh, no, he, <laughs> face, oh, no, he, you know, he, before he arrived, we weren't seeing this. So uh, it, it's interesting how good people will appreciate the good work you've done. And if you've spent time listening to faculty, um, trying to lift their sights, trying to encourage their good work and ask them for better ideas, they become your advocates as well. But, you know, that said, these are all, there are these perilous moments in every career. People now look at my career and think, you know, I was just on autopilot and just jumped from success to success. Well, I had dark moments. I had frustrating moments. I had moments when my mm -hmm. abilities were being called into question. But what I had that served me well is somebody, a friend of mine, TJ McGovern, crystallized for me so well. He said, what differentiated you? This is powerful. What differentiated you, Jim? He said, you always had confidence in your soul. That is powerful. That's it. And that's exactly what I had. I could take the rest of it. I didn't enjoy it. I could take the rest of the flack, the rest of the second guess, guessing, but there was something in me for which I'll be forever grateful that just said to me, no, don't go there. Just don't go there. Um, and, and it was this voice that said, you too have a long-term journey and don't ever sacrifice where you could be at the end for something that you will be ashamed of Um at some point don't ever do that and yeah. you know so i'm spiritual i i give thanks to god i but i don't know where that came from at a young age i mean when in my 20s i could stand up to powerful people politely and just say you know i don't think i can go there i don't think that's my destiny you know i appreciate you sharing that because I, I i share the same sentiments uh similar i should say uh you know in the times when i face challenges in my career because of politics, things that are beyond my control, I uh, face situations where, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you sit back and you said, I could have just capitulated and do something that's against my principle. That's right. Could, as a leader, I could just, just sat there and watch half of our team not getting reimbursed for the expenses and come out of pocket. Or I could have stood up to power and said, if you're going to be a team that's inclusive, maybe we should take care of our people. And that may come at a cost to me, but I slept at night knowing that I did the right thing regardless, because when you become a leader, you understand that there's, there, there, there are some price you're going to have to pay. That may not be good for yourself. That's right. You embrace that. And one of the things that I experienced, uh, you know, we're going through, you know, challenges is that, you know, somebody mentioned to me, mm -hmm. say, you know, the greatest gift you can ever get 
is when you help somebody succeed and then that person and people advocate for you without you prompting them. I mean, you know, you can be the best of everything, but you're only as good as people believe in the fact that you believe in others and they help others. And that's something that I take with me every day is I think about the work that we're doing and the privilege that I have to, to lead teams and, and do those kind of things. And uh, so, yes, yeah. And, you know, just to reinforce that point, which you made so well as you probably will pay a price at some point and guess what? It won't be the end of the world. No. Guess what? It may have always meant to be and that you are meant to be in another place with that wiser voice so that you can be more helpful to others. Absolutely. So, Jim, let's uh, shift some gears here. We often equate expending significant financial resources with greater ROI in terms of fundraising outcomes. You know, you hear folks talk about consultants coming in and uh, do a feasibility study and they'll say, well, you need 10 development officers to add to your budget. You need event staff. You need this. You need that. And all of a sudden, we've built this massive empire in advancement, and we're doing things that are very costly and, in a way, uh, eat the a good size of budget that perhaps could be dedicated to supporting the mission of the institutions that we serve. And you see that going on and on and on. And it seems like uh, folks think if you have a bigger, bigger team, a massive team, and you spend money on all sorts of trinkets that that is going to motivate people to give. So my question to you is, is this a good idea and why? Well, is it not a good, good idea? And why do you think it's not a good idea to look at, at the world from that perspective? It's not a good idea because there are so many false assumptions built into how we evaluate fundraising effectiveness. So if you raise $100 million and you spend $25 million, people will say, well, that, that was great because you showed a 4x return. But you get into that $25 million and 10 of that could have been ill-spent. We're not actually looking at cause and effect. We're looking, we're confusing correlation with causation. So we say you spent 25x, which we then say correlates to fundraising success. It doesn't cause fundraising success. And that's the big false notion out there. So that allows us to balloon costs unnecessarily. And where we invariably misspend money on things like events that we didn't need to have, weren't that fruitful, didn't draw the right people to them, were incredibly time consuming. Collateral material, which isn't that persuasive to most donors. They really are happy with something that's more straightforward um, and more interpersonal, just like you would sit down with somebody and work out an arrangement with them. You wouldn't try to over-present. You wouldn't rely on a lot of slick information. You'd use fact information, authenticity. Um, a lot of uh, advisory boards are, are um, unnecessarily expensive. Uh, conversations can sometimes work just as well as impaneling and staffing a board. So you really try to get to the pith of, of what is necessary to raise money. And of course, you know, it sounds so obvious when you say it, but people give to people mm -hmm. and, it, and, and fundraising is innately a personal 
kind of function. So the more you spend on people and interacting with people in unguarded, authentic ways, the more results you achieve. Conversely, the more you spend on putting on shows, on trying to impress, on trying to entertain, like an insecure person would if they really didn't have much to offer, the more you waste. So we've got to get into a much more honest place about where money is fruitfully spent to produce the kind of ROI. And what do we mean by the ROI? The ROI in terms of fundraise to, or the ROI in terms of differences made by the institution that received those funds. Because we can raise a lot of money that just gets digested in the bowels of an organization and doesn't make an impact anywhere. People get nicer things, nicer buildings. And guess what? The ripple effect outside the confines of our organization is not that significant. And that's exactly what a lot of donors are onto and very mm -hmm. concerned about is what's the impact? What's the ripple effect beyond your organization? Are you living in nicer places? Are you... Um, enjoying larger salaries, or are you actually making a greater difference in the lives of those you're supposed to be serving? You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a team from a, I'll say, smaller, mid-sized university, advancement staff of maybe 20 on a good day. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're, we're talking and say, you know, we raised about $5 million a year, and that's a lot for us. And, uh, you know, we do these events and we, we, but we don't have the collaterals that you would have in a big university. You don't have all that. So for us, our question is, you know, how can we, how would somebody be successful in this environment? Because we want to raise more, but you know, we, we, we just, we, we're small. I said, well, to me, everything is scalable. You have to look at what you're operating with. And there are some essential uh, positions and roles that you need to have in an advancement operation. You don't need to have everything. So right. if your budget says you can't have 10 to 10 uh, stewardship people and uh, you know you can't do these large scale events, so don't do them. There's new technology out there that can help you with you know donor engagement and things like that. So I right. think you know for, for, for those folks, what would your advice be? Because I mean, there are a lot of people that are looking at, we can name names of these massive institutions that do these grand events, they do you know, right. their publications are top notch. Everything they do is at that level. But right. my argument to them is run your your race and stay where you are because you're not running their race. You're not have, you don't have the reality that they may, they may have. What you right. have is the reality at hand, which means what's your mission, what you're trying to accomplish, and what dollars make sense to, to be expended to accomplish that mission. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, that's it. So... Um, it's the quality of ideas. So before I had my first job in higher education, I was a freelance writer. And people would say, well, you don't have contacts with the big papers and the big publications. But I discovered if I had an idea, I could break in anywhere. If I had a good idea, I could get noticed by you know the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you name it. So it was really working on the quality of the idea. When I came into advancement, I realized that's what people were looking for. They were very often being asked to sort of give to these buckets or these themes or these strategic pillars. But I tried to listen more closely to donors to understand their 
animating passions and then work within the organization to come forward with these ideas and that that would command higher levels of giving not because someone felt impressed by us but because they were so intrigued by that possibility so the trouble is saying i'm in a small organization as i can't is you already took yourself out of the game mm -hmm. what you have to say is i'm a small organization but i can come up with an idea that no one else can we can do it on a scale that no one else can we can be more efficient than big universities we can take a million dollars which they would lose you know in without even noticing it we can convert it to something much greater we're efficient we can move faster because we're hungrier and we're smaller and we can just do a better job of listening and if we do we may get to some donor with a greater capacity who's really frustrated by the pale options being offered by other institutions so if you believe in the power of ideas difference making ideas and know that there are philanthropists out there who want to make a difference based on the values that life taught them to be important that the career taught them to be important watch how many places you can get into that were perceived to be too far off or impenetrable and i spent a lifetime proving that with an idea you can get to a donor who knew nothing about you hadn't given a dollar to you uh, but who you brought an idea that they had been looking for and didn't know where it was going to come from and all of a sudden somebody says if that's what you care about did you know we could be doing that Mm -hmm. And and finally, you know, we're now living in a time where there is less loyalty to institutions because people are so frustrated with institutions and they're looking across institutions for the ones that can address the issue, the topic that they believe to be most important in the most innovative and productive way. So we got to get people stopping this. I don't have um, somebody has more if I don't spend as much and just working on your strategic planning, on finding the heroes within your organization who are doing astonishingly good things with modest budgets, and then starting to tell people, look what that person is doing with $50,000 a year. Imagine what he or she could do with 100000 Good point. I mean, I, I, uh, I argue that we really need to think beyond, oh, so-and-so is our alum, and they're going to be passionate about giving us money, and understand yes. that donors want to see impact how is your idea going to have a scalable global impact That's if you it. have the idea you can be the tiniest school and you get the resources and they also want to see results so if you say i'm going to do x they expect that you will produce x mm -hmm. and if you produce x you gain a lifetime donor i right. feel like sometimes it, it seems obvious but for many folks it's uh well let's just go come up with something we'll get money and right. i said no you have to have a big idea that somebody is right. going to care about and it doesn't matter if they're your alum you know it's, it could be somebody who doesn't really know you but right. heard that you're doing something and they want to make an investment you know right. yeah so um there's too much of, you know, acting like the Salvation Army, which does fine things. But, you know, in other words, let's get the loyal to drop coins in our bucket. Mm -hmm. Th that misses so many opportunities. No, let's get anybody who has a passion to make a difference in the human condition um, and, and show them how at our institution we can be a valuable ally. 
Yeah. So as you think about somebody wanting to invest in a uh, philanthropic operation in an advancement office, you know, from a leadership role, they're looking at uh, things that make sense for them to invest in, in terms of personnel and programs that are necessary uh, and things that may not be necessary, but we think they're necessary because the last five schools that we look at do that. Uh, right. What would those, what would those be in your book? Well, um, you, you want to look at, for instance, if you're talking about an institution of higher learning, mm -hmm. you, you want to look at where students are voting with their feet, right? Mm -hmm. So if certain sections are oversubscribed, if the nursing program is, is bulging at the seams and employers are saying we need more nurses, you've got a case for support right there, right? Mm -hmm. you, you want to get past this sort of giving categories because they they're it's almost unintelligible to the donor. Okay, I think I understand, but I don't see the difference being made. So you, you see what it is. Who are you go back to who are you serving? Um, another one of my clients is um, Hazelton Betty Ford. And so they deal with alcoholism and addiction. Well, you've got a built-in case for support when you see a rising rate of incidents, when you've got a proven way of dealing with that um, that malady, right? And then mm -hmm. you, you're the best at it. All you say is, we have the ability, we just need greater wherewithal to deliver it faster to this growing segment of need, which we can target by geography or we can target by the kind of abuse that's occurring, right? You've got a built-in case for support. So much of what we're trying to do, again, is not about people helping people or making a difference in human life. It's so indirect and abstract that people can't grasp it. So... I always try to find the people-to-people -people story within an organization, and that's how I advise clients. So show me where the, there is either external demand that's increasing in an area that you do well, or in the case of education institutions, show me where students' futures are somewhat occluded because we can't provide them what they know they want and need, uh, and you know they're hungry and they're willing to work hard, and let's break down those barriers and further empower them. Joaquin, everybody gets that language and their, mm -hmm. and their ears prick up when you start talking that way. Oh, we got veterans, we got first generation students, we got, you know, we got wh wh whatever it is. Um, and we, we have some idea of what works. We wanna run an experiment with you. We think we can, we can magnify these capabilities by two X with this level of investment. It's just so rare to find a case for support that is anything close to that. Yeah, and and, and I think, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody from a liberal arts school, university, and uh, they said, well, so we don't have the research program that Institution X has. That's why they can raise hundreds of millions of dollars. But we have the, we have the stories. We have the first-generation students that we are focusing on and we can show you how we've impacted generations of being around for a long time but that's not something that's appealing to many people i said you know i beg to differ because i, I can't tell you how powerful that is to focus on facilitating social mobility and the greater good that that has and there's there are many people especially at this juncture in our institution who want well-rounded citizens to come out of these institutions. I agree. And your institution can play a role. Say, really? I say, yes, 
we, the, you can get people to give you money. You just have to hone in on what your story is. What is this, right. What's your story? And go out there and share it. And there'll be somebody that's going to want to be part of that. Agree completely. And I've seen it happen hundreds of times. So you see this, these self-fulfilling prophecies, I can't means you never will. You have to actually believe in the possible. Now you have to take just exactly what you said and make sure that you're then able to make some reasonable projection forward. Nobody's going to give to you based on the good work you've done, but on the good work you intend to do. But the good work you've done are your proof points. So what if you're gonna if you're gonna approach somebody who's never given to you before, you've got to get the elements right. Look what we're doing well, look at the modest budget with which we're doing it. Look at the proof points. We've proved the efficacy of working with first-generation students. We've shown we can move that social mobility index, but we're kind of stuck here because we're capped off at a level of funding. And again, with 25% more or you know, a carefully crafted budget, um, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to show forethought. You will capture that philanthropic investor who goes, You're talking my language. That's that's very true. Um, so in your mind, is there a specific budget or size uh, of an advancement program that you recommend to any institution? Is there a baseline or is it more of what problem are you trying to solve and then build your team depending on that problem you're trying to solve or the solution you're trying to provide? What right. are your thoughts? So um, I, I wrote um, um, a blog post maybe a year ago, two years ago. It was very popular. It, it, it went wide and far and got a lot of positive comment, got shared. I said, if I were starting an advancement office from scratch, first thing I'd hire is what I'll call a beat reporter. And that is somebody to work within the organization and find me good stories of people doing remarkable things with very little, right? Um, so you can call that person whatever you want, but I'll call him a beat reporter. The second person I'm going to hire is a researcher who's going to find me people who care about the stories produced. And you watch what I can do with those two people. Yeah, I mean, you you have you know you have the stories, you have the research, you connect the dots, magic happens. It's connection. It's matchmaking. Yeah, you know, I I've I've used the analogy of uh, Match.com, you know, and. Uh, People I said, well, match.com, you have person A, person B. They have an interest. That's and it. match, through their algorithm, provides a venue for them to connect. They connect. They're successful. Match can say, we're successful in, in providing X million number of people fulfilling lives through relationships. Bingo. And, and in a way, we are facilitators. Bingo. And we got so big and so removed from those realities, we got stupid, and that's why we're losing so many donors. Yes, and so uh, it, it it is, and you know, with the donors, and also I think uh, it goes to uh, you know personnel to talent. I mean, you've seen it over the years. You know, people come in, they burn out, they leave. You know, and and for for business that that's about facilitating relationships. You know, it's not a very smart strategy to just think, well, I'm so-and-so, you know, I'll find somebody else. Uh, it's not that easy, and it's, it's it's not in the best interest of the institution. No, it's not. It's very damaging in the long run. If you look at the reasons for advancement staff turnover, they're very similar 
to the reasons for donor turnover. And it isn't ironic that we're now struggling on both fronts. We didn't listen to either one, and we wonder why now so many organizations are seeing, you know, loss of donors. They've masked it by getting fewer, older, wealthier people to give larger amounts. But last year in the United States of America, overall giving dropped by $17 billion or 10.4%, which we were predicting for a long time. We didn't know what year, but we said it's coming because you can only lose so many donors before your loyalists that you've relied on to, for so long get really fatigued by being relied on and saying, where's the replacement? And they stop giving or they pull back at the same time you all that volume catches up with you. And it's where we are. And if you look at the first two quarters of this year, according to an analysis done by the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, this year is even a bleaker story. So some will survive or look like they're doing well because they have a larger quotient of older, wealthier donors masking the significant erosion. But this is something that will catch up with us all. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And we're seeing it. It's going to continue to happen until the day that, uh, you know, we have leadership at the institutional level that says, okay, we need to reset here and, and think about things uh, from a from a grander scale. So as uh, as we come to a close of this episode, I uh, really enjoyed it. I want to offer you an opportunity to give a shout out to one of your mentors, uh, somebody who uh, has uh, uh, influenced uh, you, know, you uh, in your professional life and uh, how they've uh, impacted you. Well, the person who I will be forever indebted to is no longer with us, and I didn't fully appreciate him as t at the time, but I hope there are family members that might be listening. His name was Paul Pearson. He was the president of Miami University. He was a very unassuming, quiet man, uh, but he saw something in me. He trusted me. He gave me very significant opportunities. He overlooked my mistakes. Um, and, you know, simply treated me as someone who was valuable and allowed me to make valuable contributions to him as his speechwriter, as his advisor at a very young age, and gave me the confidence to go on to put my name in the hat at bigger places and to take on greater challenges. So uh, to Paul Pearson, a quiet, unassuming man, I, to my dying day, will say he was the single most important person in my career that is excellent uh i often mention that i've had an, a number of uh different people that uh have Im impacted me professionally uh for me it was uh the late dr barbara hibner who was uh the first women's athletic director at the university of nebraska i was uh went to school in nebraska and i grew up in nebraska and uh, uh when i was a graduate assistant in the athletic department She's the first person who kind of took me under her wing and she saw a promise in me and she talked to me about going into fundraising. I didn't know what the heck that was. And she told me a story about how she was able to build the women's athletic program at a time when women were not getting, this was before Title IX, so they're not getting any major support. And, what you know, when you look at uh, University of Nebraska Athletics today, it, you know, the women's programs in the athletic department would not be where it was without her. And so I learned a lot from her and, uh, you know, uh, about serving leadership, being humble. Uh, this is a person who I recall will go to the Big 12 Conference Championships. She has VIP seats, but she'll give the VIP seats to her administrative assistant 
and wow. students and she'll go sit in the back and say, I get these all the time. Wow. Uh, but Debbie never gets to see this. So here you go. And it was that kind of person who gave all that she had to ensure that the mission of the institution prevailed. So I, I give a lot of credit to the person that I become. And uh, fortunately, we lost her years ago. Uh, and uh, but we still think of her. So uh, as we uh, as we wrap up here, two key, two quick takeaways for our audience uh, on the subject that we've talked about, uh, you know, uh, or expending resources and investing in advancement. If you were to leave two key takeaways, what would those be? Always remember this is a business about people helping people and that anything that we do as an institution that we wouldn't do face-to-face, person-to-person is a really bad sign and it should be abandoned. So remember that when in doubt, say, would this, would I ask this of someone close to me, of a family member? And institutional relations, when done well, are nothing more than human relations writ large writ large that is excellent advice jim thank you so much well there you have it folks i'm kim naoni thanks for tuning in to the mentorship matters see you soon